0: Hi, this is Rebecca Onion, and this is the last episode of the History of American Slavery podcast, and thank you so much for listening. This project was made possible by Slate Plus, Slate's membership program. To help us make more of this kind of work, please become a member by signing up at slate.com academy. Slate Plus members get benefits, like ad-free podcasts and bonus content. In fact, Slate Plus members have access to two additional episodes of this podcast series, In one, we go deeper into the history of the slave narrative with Dr. Henry Louis Gates, Jr. And in the other, Jamal talks with LeVar Burton and others about how to talk about slavery honestly. To learn more and sign up, please visit slate.com slash academy. Thanks again.
1: Welcome to Episode 9 of the History of American Slavery at Slate Academy. I'm Jamal Bowie.
0: And I'm Rebecca Onion. On our last episode, we looked at the decade of the 1850s. We took a look at what happened to enslaved people who managed to escape, and about some of the ways that conflict over the Fugitive Slave Act, which was passed in 1850, exacerbated tensions between slave states and free states.
1: We know those tensions boiled over into war just a few years later, and there have been thousands of books, countless books, written on that war in the years since. Most of them, I think, focused on the military and political dynamics of the conflict, But on today's podcast, which is the final of our series, we're going to keep our focus on the people who were at the center of this conflict, and that's the 4 million people who had lived up until this point in bondage. What did the end of slavery mean for them, and how did they begin the enormous task of putting their lives together as a free people?
0: As we do with each episode of our series, we'll begin by considering the life of a single person. Today, that person is a woman named Rose Herrera.
2: Rose Herrera was born in the parish of Point Coupee, Louisiana, in 1835. Though she lived through the abolition of American slavery, Rose's personal struggle for freedom had only just begun when emancipation made her a free woman. Described as a good washer and ironer, in an advertisement for her sale, Rose was purchased by New Orleans dentist James DeHart around 1861. She married a free black man, George Herrera, and the couple had five children together. At the end of 1862, half a year after the Union army entered New Orleans, James DeHart and his wife, Mary, could see the writing on the wall. They began pressuring Rose to go with them to Havana, Cuba, where slavery still prevailed. After getting in a domestic spat with a DeHart relative, Rose was put in prison. While there, the DeHarts fled to Cuba and took three of Rose's children with them. After the war was over, Rose Herrera began a legal campaign to get her family back. When Mary DeHart returned to New Orleans without the kids, she was jailed and charged with kidnapping. A court eventually ruled that Mary DeHart could return to Cuba on the condition that Rose's children be returned to America. The family was reunited in March 1866, with the sad exception of George, who died before the children were returned.
1: It seems like Rose's story is somehow emblematic of kind of what a lot of enslaved people and formerly enslaved people were going through in this period of emancipation.
0: That's why I wanted to talk more about her and this kind of story today. Cause I think there's this sort of misconception um, that you might have from sort of like a outline picture of history that the emancipation proclamation made everybody free at once. And it was sort of a clean surgical cut Um, but From the history that we're looking at today, it becomes clear that emancipation was really uneven and sort of confusing and dangerous.
1: You could almost say it came in in fits and starts, right? You have, Mm -hmm. in the very beginning, uh, enslaved people escaping and eventually the Union Army having to form what's called contraband camps um, to deal with this influx of people who are basically Mm -hmm. refugees from slavery. And even after the Emancipation Proclamation, right, there are large chunks of the South, which are so remote that people don't know that emancipation to come.
0: Yeah. And there is a aspect of the Emancipation Proclamation, too, that I never really fully grasped, which is that there are parts of the South that were exempted from it. So that if you were nominally loyal to the Union, you could still continue to hold slaves right. or there were places where it was more politically expedient for the emancipation proclamation not to reach at that time. right? Um, And so there's a number of situations in 1862 where, you know, um, a general will declare freedom for the people who are behind his lines, like anyone who will enlist. And then the president will have to say, actually, that's not true. We're not doing that. (laughs) Um, And then there's sort of uh, movements for compensated emancipation or gradual emancipation. Um, And then there are movements to allow freedom for people who will enlist in the Union Army. And then finally, in January 1863, of course, there's the actual Emancipation Proclamation.
1: And even when the Emancipation Proclamation eventually came down in January 1863, it didn't apply to the entire South and apply to the entire country. Um, I think the best way to understand it is as a joint political military measure on on one Mm -hmm. end. Uh, It did not apply to the border states, places like Kentucky and and Maryland and Missouri, where there were still people holding slaves, where there is large chunks of the public who are sympathetic to the Confederacy, and where Lincoln really wanted just to keep them in the fold and avoid that kind of political and military loss. It didn't apply to... Basically, union-held areas of the South. New Orleans sort of exempted from the Emancipation mm-hmm. Proclamation, and there are cases of enslaved people, you know, escaping to Union encampments just outside New Orleans and saying things like, "Well, my master is a rebel, so you have to let me. You have to let me in." Right. Uh, it basically exists, applied to Confederate-held areas of the South, and an implicit encouragement to enslaved people to leave. Um, to escape, to do what they can, mm-hmm. uh, and and in that way undermine the southern war effort, which was heavily dependent on on enslaved people for labor and other kind of parts of the of the war regime.
0: Yeah, so in effect, you're sort of, um, you know, fighting with your feet in right. a way. You're moving yourself from the equation. Right. Um, and then, often, of course, in many cases, actually fighting afterwards. Yes, that's yeah. right. So you mentioned that New Orleans was in a particularly strange position is that New Orleans was actually um, fell to the union army in late April, 1862, which is really early in the war. That's right. And so the legal situation of the people who were enslaved there um, was, you know, you're sort of working in this city where there's union soldiers all around, yet you're still enslaved. Um, And so our first interview today is with Adam Rothman, who's a historian at Georgetown University. And he's written a book about Rose Herrera's efforts to put her family back together. But the book is also sort of in a way about what it was like in New Orleans in those strange years when everything was in limbo.
3: It is a bizarre situation where the Emancipation Proclamation basically applies to all the territory that the union does not actually control. So, as the Union Army marches forward, it becomes an army of liberation. But in the places that were exempted from the Emancipation Proclamation, like New Orleans, it's just a whole different kettle of fish.
0: So, how did the enslaved people in New Orleans or other maybe other places like that react to this? They knew what was going on, yeah, right
3: uh they react in a variety of ways. The most overt is that they they flee to the Union Army, mm-hmm. so at the various encampments where the Union Army is in and around New Orleans and so people just start showing up and saying, my master is a rebel. Uh, I want to mm-hmm. work for you. I want to fight for the Union. Um, and this is men, women, and children showing up at the Union Army lines. And then the Union Army officers and soldiers basically have to figure out what to do with them. And there there are actually battles, not battles, arguments among (laughs) Union officials, generals, about what to do with these fugitive slaves. Should they be returned to their owners? Um, Which owners should should they be returned to? Mm -hmm. Uh, If they are not going to be returned to their owners, what is to be done with them? It's just a really uh, foggy situation. You know, the, the conventional wisdom is the Union army occupied New Orleans, but I like to say that the slaves actually occupied the Union army. Um, <laughs> they, they presented yeah. themselves as a, as a problem, as uh, they presented slavery as a problem, and they forced Union soldiers and officers and ultimately politicians to figure out what to do with them.
0: You know, in some ways it's kind of um, disappointing to realize how qualified the Emancipation Proclamation really was, to think about the fact that there were whole areas that were exempt from it, and that these areas were places that Lincoln was concerned to keep on his side. Um, And how do you feel when you think about this part of the history? What do you think about that?
1: You know, I think the temptation is to use this as evidence that Lincoln was not actually committed to emancipation. And there's Whenever I talk about Lincoln on social media, say there's inevitably someone who is like, well, you know, who, say, who cites the Horace Greeley letter, who kind of makes the, tries to make the case that Lincoln was at best um, a fair weather friend of emancipation and at worst actively opposed. I think that is wrong. And I think the Emancipation Proclamation is actually evidence of why that is wrong. To my mind in in my reading and sort of Based on what I know, the Emancipation Proclamation seems to be primarily a political document. Um, And as a political document, it is trying to do a couple things at once. And I think I mentioned some of them earlier. Uh, It's trying to protect union interest in border states. It's trying to undermine the Confederacy. It's trying to galvanize the northern public and international public for the union cause And it's trying to do this without overstepping Lincoln's constitutional authority, which throughout the war and throughout his presidency, he's very much attuned to the limits of his authority under the Constitution. And the Emancipation Proclamation accomplishes all of that. I think another way of putting this is... The fact that it's even called the Emancipation Proclamation is a political decision. There's no reason for it to be called that. It could have been called, you know, a general order to free slaves in states under rebellion. It could have been called all sorts of things, but it's specifically called the Emancipation, a charged, politically heated word, mm-hmm. proclamation from the President of the United States. Um, and if you think about it in those terms, then what that means is that if you are, if you imagine the enslaved person or the family in the Florida panhandle who hears about this, or in South Carolina who hears about this, they don't know about the exemptions. The exemptions are really for a different audience. They hear the Emancipation Proclamation, and regardless of whether they are legally able to leave, they try to do it. Um, in, in calling it that, it fundamentally changes the character of the war. And I think Lincoln was aware of this. I think this was the point. And so, yes, there are these exemptions, and yes, it is the case that the Emancipation Proclamation did not free all the slaves. It only, you know, I'm using air quotes here, freed <laughs> slaves in places where the Union had no territorial control. Right. But the fact of it being called the Emancipation Proclamation is highly significant um, for all those symbolic reasons. And I think that's not, I don't think that's an accident. I, I think the whenever we're thinking or talking about Lincoln, it, it is incredibly important to understand that he is probably one of the most masterful politicians that ever occupied the Oval Office. And he's very much in this case, acting as a politician.
0: It's really interesting to think about that sort of, um, like the question of scale in that relationship, the relationship between, um, you know, a proclamation coming from a president and what goes on in uh, enslaved persons sort of daily life, like if they're still living in a place where slavery is sort of nominally happening. Um, But there is a a sort of like a heartening effect or exciting effect of this proclamation. Um, And Adam told us a little bit about the way that he found evidence of the dynamic evolving in New Orleans while the Union Army was there.
3: I think we have a tendency to think of wartime emancipation as something that was fought out principally on battlefields and in contraband camps Behind Union Army lines, but it was also fought on plantations and in households where the Union Army was not a direct presence. Mm -hmm. So one of the things that I found in researching Rose Herrera's story was the diary of a Confederate woman named Anne Wilkinson Penrose, who kept a daily account of life in New Orleans under union rule. And it's just a bitter, raging journal. She's just upset about everything. But one of the things she's upset about, increasingly upset about, is the refusal of her household servants as she called them they're really slaves to work in the ways that she was used to so the diary is full of these vignettes where she asks uh, a woman to bake bread and the the woman doesn't do it properly in her opinion and and she slaps the woman and the woman rises up indignantly and says don't ever do that again in uh, these sorts of these sorts of episodes, which were so uncommon before the Union army comes in and just disrupts the whole balance of power between masters and slaves.
2: I rose and went into the kitchen to speak to Becky. She was leaning down with her back towards me as I entered. I could not resist giving her a good hard slap on the shoulder, which by the by hurt my hand. I have no doubt more than it did her. At the same time, I asked how she dared to send in such bread and cakes, and she started up, looked furiously at me, and exclaimed, "Don't you do that again? Let it be the last time, or I'll just march out of this yard."
1: What's so great about that reading is just the that last line. "Don't you do that again? Let it be the last time, or I'll just march out of that yard." It's so, it's so bold, um, mm-hmm. and to my mind, very funny, very almost comical. But it seems like it does carry this undercurrent of of danger, even still.
0: Yeah, I mean, I think it's really, there's this way that these conflicts are sort of erupting, and, you know, you think to yourself, you know, Becky has probably been waiting to say this for years, like, this has been boiling. And so you want to kind of, like, jump up and cheer. But as Rothman reminded us, people like Becky still were existing within sort of a perilous set of circumstances.
3: At the same time, as there is this new sense of confidence, this new sense of empowerment on the part of enslaved people, it is a very dangerous time. Mm -hmm. uh, Because slaveholders are not yet defeated. Um, In New Orleans in 1862 and 1863, they still have the hope of coming back into power, a belief that the Confederacy will somehow, someday still prevail. And when it does they'll get the whip hand back. They'll push their enslaved people back down into slavery. And I think that's a real possibility for much of the war. And I think it contributes to the mayhem and violence of the process of emancipation. So we shouldn't forget, uh, while we enjoy these stories of resistance and relief, that simultaneously there is a whole world of pain and violence still out there, still boiling Uh, and um, that's part of the mayhem of the period.
0: So getting back to the biography of Rose Herrera that we started with, um, it's pretty notable and interesting that the slaveholder took her kids to Havana, Cuba, in particular.
1: Yes, and the decision to take the kids to Havana is not an accident. One of the, I think... Interesting. It, it, it turns interesting. at turns incredibly alarming. Facts of slaveholder society in the 1850s was a growing. I call it. I call it push speculation, demand to really try to expand their slaveholding empire further south in the other regions. If they couldn't go north, if they couldn't go west. Um, then they could just go further south. And so, Cuba was a target because slavery still existed there. But there are other. Uh, southern slaveholders who who thought they could expand the institution even further south in places like Nicaragua, even Mexico. Um, There are a group of men uh, called filibusters, a term that has no real relationship to the term um we use for unlimited debate in the Senate. It is a derivative of a term uh, called freebooter, which it, it's taken from piracy, basically someone who goes to stir up revolution, a mercenary type. In the Southern press at the time, there were writers like George Fitzhugh. Um, who was a noted partisan of slavery, who encouraged this kind of thing. One of the most famous filibusters um, we know of is William Walker, who ends up failing in his attempt to do this um, and comes back to the United States. But the point is that there was a real push to um, further expand slavery uh, as much as, as much as was possible. And that this, almost, you could call it a radicalization of slaveholding society um, was one of the things that pushed the country towards war.
0: Yeah. And that stuff is, um, you know, it sounds almost fantastical. It's so ideological and so extreme to our ears. Although, of course, there were, the fact that there are actually historical examples of people actually trying to carry out this ideology kind of changes the tenor of the discussion when you talk about what would have happened in the United States if the Civil War had not been fought? You know, would we have ever abolished slavery peacefully? And so we asked Adam Rothman to engage in some counterfactual speculation with us.
1: Right. I think ask might be a polite term. We kind of badgered him into the counterfactual discussion.
0: Um, Regarding what would have happened to slavery if the Civil War had never occurred.
3: There used to be an idea that slavery was just going to die a natural death in the 19th century through to the, the pressures of the invisible hand,
0: I think that
1: I think that's still a common understanding. It yeah, it's people, false. Yeah. yeah, it's completely <laughs> false.
3: Um, there are many ways that slavery was able to find uh, a thriving niche for itself in the new industrial order of the nineteenth century, both through uh, the expansion of cotton, uh, but also the technological innovation in the oldest of the plantation economies—that of sugar. And and I think one of the reasons why the civil war emancipation during the civil war was so crucial is precisely
1: because slavery was not ever going to die a natural death. Yeah. So it could have just absent emancipation or absent the civil war could have just kind of chugged along in the United States indefinitely. It could have chugged along Mm -hmm.
3: indefinitely. Even the visions of gradual emancipation that were floated before the civil war, the kinds of visions that even Lincoln subscribed to, really didn't imagine the final abolition of slavery until the end of the 1800s. Wow. Right? So, we're, you know, think about that possibility. And not only is it a question of whether or not and when slavery would have been abolished, but how different would the social and political order of the United States have been if slavery had slowly morphed into some other kind of you know, quasi-feudal right. relationship? Um, in the heart of a liberal democracy. So there are a lot of what-ifs, Right. Yeah. but none of them are good. Yeah,
1: <laughs> You know, setting aside the alternate history for a moment, um, if we go back to real history, there was a real fear among enslaved people that this state of freedom wasn't permanent, that they, things were very uncertain, things were very much in flux in terms of what all of this meant.
0: And that's another reason why the Rose Herrera story you know, stands in for a lot of the uncertainty here. You know, her kids actually were kidnapped and taken away down into Cuba. You know, but there were you know other rumors after the end of the war of recently freed people being kidnapped and sold down to Cuba or Brazil someplace in South America. Um, which kind of goes to show that the specter of the continuing slavery in the southern part of the hemisphere um, is very real to people. Um, and that these places exist as, you know, a place where you could still be grabbed and sold down to. Um, and Adam Rothman told us that these fears were so prevalent that in 1866, the Senate actually investigated and issued a report on this question of kidnappings. And although it's hard to find concrete evidence about the veracity of some of these reports, that the the fears that people had of these kinds of kidnappings came from the precarity that they felt, especially during the war.
1: That's right. There are definite instances of mass kidnappings during the war. Um, one of my, I wouldn't call it favorite facts, it's a, it's a horrible thing, but it's it's a useful fact to know just in terms of debunking myths about the Civil War. Um, one of those myths is that the, you know, Robert E. Lee and the Army of Northern Virginia were, were fighting for their homes and their own freedom. But it is a fact that during the Gettysburg campaign, um, Robert E. Lee's army in Northern Virginia embarked on kidnapping campaigns to take blacks, um, free blacks, and and sell them down south into slavery or send them down south into slavery. And that sort of thing wasn't unknown to enslaved people. They heard of these things and it caused quite a bit of fear.
3: You have to remember that, uh, you know, the Civil War was a hard fought, you know, closely fought war. and uh it wasn't one in which the Union army kept pushing forward. You know, there were times that they retreated, there were times that they were defeated, there were times that the Confederacy gained background that they had lost. And whenever they did, the newly freed people in those regions were in for trouble. Um, because Confederates seized them, sometimes they killed them, sometimes they sold them back into slavery. Uh, there are many examples of that sort of thing. We don't; it hasn't quite made it into the history books yet. But there's a lot of evidence that stuff like that took place. So the rumor of the kidnappings after the war, I think, is very much an extension. Right. Of that experience of wartime kidnapping and also kidnapping before the war. Fact, you know, the case fugitively. of Solomon North is the most yeah. famous one, but again, only the tip of the iceberg for the experience of free people of color, especially in the North, but also free people of color in the South being. Uh, essentially re-enslaved. So this was part of the experience of black people in the United States. We always think of people moving from slavery to freedom. and We don't often think about people moving um, from freedom back into slavery or careening between those two conditions. I think we've been taken in by this idea that the arc of the moral universe bends towards justice. Sometimes, you know, it bends backwards. Mm-hmm. And I think that happened during the war. War is mayhem. It's havoc. So if we if we enter into the experience of enslaved and newly free people during the war and see it through their eyes, we would see it as a much more chaotic, much more confusing, incredibly hopeful, but also um, incredibly fearful moment.
1: The arc of the universe is squiggly. It's
3: Yes, yeah, the yeah. arc of the universe the is of squiggly. The arc of the universe
0: is not an arc, in <laughs> <laughs> <No, no. laughs> my opinion.
1: To continue along with that kind of big picture thinking, I, I do want to make a, a couple quick points about what it meant for emancipation in the United States to come when it did. Um, the first thing is that we really are in a situation in 1860-1860 in 1865, where there are legitimate questions about whether a democratic society can survive, can exist, can endure. Um, just 10 years earlier, there were failed revolutions in Europe. Democracy kind of is on the wane um, in, in, in sort of countries where it existed. And so the Civil War becomes this big kind of world historical question of whether or not democratic government actually is feasible to... The successful conclusion of it for the United States is actually a very big deal in terms of the spread of democratic governance.
0: Yeah. And we were late to emancipate. That's right. Um, we were late to abolish. But after we did, the rest of you know Cuba and Brazil followed suit.
1: Right. It's hard to imagine a United States that kind of persists as a liberal democracy, but is also a large slave society. Essentially, eventually something would have had to give. And in in sort of real-life history, what gave was we had a war about it. But if we had never had a war about it, it's hard to say what would have happened. But my my hunch is that the United States, or at least large parts of it, would look something like South Africa, except way worse. South African apartheid. I think the other thing to keep in mind is that the end of slavery... And I'll be careful about our language here. There's no question that in the 21st century, there are people who are enslaved. There is slavery in countries like Mauritania. Um, there are lots of discrete instances and examples of human bondage. With that said, the emancipation of the United States effectively ended the global economic institution that was slavery. Um, that no longer exists. And that is a huge thing. Um, And when we say slavery has ended, I think that's generally what we mean, that this transatlantic, deeply embedded institution of uh, bondage that connected the United States to South America, to Europe, um, to European colonies elsewhere had come to an end.
0: Right. A thing that was at the foundation of everyone who had a lot of money partly had it because of that. Right. And that's not the case anymore.
1: Right. And that's that's no small thing. And in our conversation with Adam, um, he really kind of gets to the fact that we should not discount, even, even with all the caveats and everything that came after emancipation and all the failures in the United States to really make good on the promises of emancipation, we really should not discount how genuinely important this was, both for enslaved people— for the United States as a country and for, you know, I mean, to sound a bit prosaic about it, the the cause of human freedom.
0: Yes, even the very fact that Rose Herrera was able to work through the courts in the later part of the 1860s and was able to retrieve her children um, was sort of revolutionary in a way. Um, You know, we talked a little bit about the the way that the trial went for her, the way that, um, you know, people were called as witnesses to say, you know, those children seemed happy with the slaveholder. Um, they seemed like they were being taken good care of, which is sort of this like standard paternalist line, which has at its heart the implication that black people can't possibly be good parents. And, you know, she was able to sort of battle through that and get them back. And that's the sort of the effect of emancipation within an individual life. So we're going to take a little break, and when we come back, we're going to speak again with Heather Williams, the historian we spoke with in episode four about family separation. And we're going to talk to her about the other ways that people after the war, after emancipation, during Reconstruction, who had been scattered to the four corners of the earth, tried to find each other.
2: You can read an excerpt from Adam Rothman's book, Beyond Freedom's Reach: A Kidnapping in the Twilight of Slavery, as part of this Slate Academy. Find the link in our show notes or at slate.com/academy.
0: the History of American Slavery, a Slate Academy. I'm Rebecca Onion.
1: And I'm Jamal Bowie. We're talking today about how formerly enslaved people attempted to put their families back together in the years following emancipation.
0: Just as Rose Herrera spent the years after the war trying really hard to get her children back from Cuba, many other people found themselves in the position of trying to figure out where their far-flung families were. What's
1: so difficult about trying to tell these stories or even construct them in the first place, it's just the sheer lack of documentary evidence. Remember, enslaved people did not have records with them. Many of them did not know how to read or write um, or or take down records. And so what we rely on to kind of build these narratives and find these stories are what we have from the Freedmen's Bureau, which was established towards the end of the Civil War to begin to, I mean, essentially deal with the huge population of formerly enslaved people who now had to, you know, make their way in a war-torn South.
0: The records at the Freedmen's Bureau, which actually have been recently released online, and we can include the link to that in our show notes, um, are good sources for tracing what happened to some families, people who happened to come into contact with the Freedmen's Bureau in trying to find their loved ones but there's a lot of stories that have gotten lost. In a recent book entitled, Help Me to Find My People, historian Heather Williams, who we talked to in episode four, when we talked about family separation, um, she documents the stories of people doing everything in their power to find their husbands, wives, children, and parents who had been taken from them in one way or another. So we had the chance to talk to Professor Williams again at the end of our podcast series. Um, to ask her how people tried to rectify the family separations that had happened to them during the slavery
4: years. If you were in Virginia, if you were a mother in Virginia whose child had been purchased by a trader, you had no idea where your child had ended up. I mean, sometimes people had some sense of it. But very often, um, when people started the search, they just weren't sure. And nobody had kept records. You know, individual traders would have records, so their are letters that a slave trader writing back to one of his partners, or even one um, where he's writing back to his wife, and he, he lists the eight people he had sold. He names them, but it's just a first name. And that's not an official record. There was no directory. There was no listing of where people had been taken to. And so you start out having a sense that the particular trader who had purchased your child in the market in Richmond or from the plantation in Richmond did business in New Orleans. And so, you know, I see people who were writing to the Freedmen's Bureau, a government office that was established by the federal government. Um, people are using them as a kind of search bureau. So, somebody in Virginia might write to the Freedmen's Bureau in New Orleans and say, "The trader took my child, and this is the trader's name, and can you tell me what happened to my son?" But most times, a letter like that would have just gone into the garbage or into a file.
0: So one thing that I try to remember when hearing about these stories is just how much geographic distance slavery had put between some people. So you could have, you know, someone who started out in Virginia, had a family in Virginia and then got sold way south, and you could have someone who was way south and then during the war the slaveholder took them to Texas to try to stay away from the army. Um any number of situations like that that put in a time when there is not really you know, fast transportation um and especially not for no money, <laughs> um the geographic distance becomes just kind of unimaginable,
1: right. And this is I mean, I want to emphasize the extent to which, depending on where you're enslaved, you could be separated from family members and spouses by these huge distances just as a matter of the of the local economy. So Virginia, for example, is a slave exporting state. Um, If you are enslaved in the Tidewater and your child gets sold away, they could be sold away literally anywhere. Um, They could be sold away in North Carolina. It could be in Florida. It could be in Mississippi and Louisiana. And given those distances and not just the lack of uh, fast travel, but the lack of rapid communication of any kind, they're effectively dead for all intents and purposes. When, when someone is sold away across those sorts of distances, they might as well have died. And I re- I recall, you know, at least reading letters and slave narratives, of people talking about it in exactly those terms of feeling as if their family members had died once they were sold away. And so you can imagine then, right, the, the jubilation of being reunited, because it really is like someone coming back from the dead.
0: Yeah, it's amazing to think about those kinds of journeys, and also amazing to think about sort of the thought process you would go through trying to plan out how you would try to get reunited, the amount of sort of networking and thinking and researching that you'd have to do. And so some of the stories that Dr. Williams found were about people who made the decision to try to go back to where they had been sold. And that was their strategy for trying to be reunited.
4: And so somebody from Arkansas goes back to Virginia to find her mother and her sister. And She gets there, but then she's run out of money, and she wants to get back to Arkansas with her mother and sister, but she has no funds, and so she goes to the Freedmen's Bureau, and the agent was very sympathetic, and he tried to get approval to give her money for transportation, but his higher-up said, no, let her just stay in Virginia. And she says, but I have a husband and children in Arkansas, and we're doing very well there, and so I want to take my mother and my sister there. And the bureaucracy, you know, you see the letters going back and forth, and eventually she finds a way. I mean, she was obviously quite resourceful, and she found the money to get back to Arkansas. So transportation is an issue and it's through these requests that you get to see what the people were doing. They're making these efforts, but it's really up to the discretion of the Freedmen's Bureau, you know, that agent or that office, whether you'll get the support. And I think that if you were elderly, you were more likely to get support getting back to family because the government didn't want you to be dependent on the government. So if you're old. And you can't work, then maybe the government's going to have to give you rations, food rations, and they don't want that, so they'll they'll help pay for you to get back to a family that can support you. Um, so it, it was really tough i mean some people just walked for hundreds of miles trying to get back to the place where they had left family and of course sometimes you get there and the family's not there and that's something people had found during slavery when they escaped you go back thinking your mother and your your siblings are where you left them and they're not there
1: listening to professor williams and sort of just you know reading and thinking about these stories my my first thought and this might just be because i'm me is that I am shocked that no one has tried to make a film out of any of this it seems sort of ready made for a cinematic depiction either i know of the you know lee daniel's kind of smaltzy type like the butler or you know my my preference would be for something a bit more you know i guess the word i'm looking for is bleak or dire Oh no! Um, <laughs> yeah, you know, like a movie where you know a formerly enslaved person you know traverses the South, um, not just to find their relatives but to get revenge. Right? You know, that's that's more my style. Uh, um, but either way, yeah, you know. this all seems very ripe for for cinema, just because these are such powerful stories and they're stories that you know happen right here in the United States in places that you can go visit right now.
0: Yeah. And, you know, in telling that story cinematically, you could also, um, tell the story of the fortunes of the people who've been split up. You know, like we've been talking throughout this whole series about the sort of diversity of ways that slavery happened. You know, you tell the story of a reunion. You're also telling the story of the intervening years, these people, you know, your, your characters having these different experiences and then coming back together and trying to figure out how to live together again. That's a really interesting story. I think you should write a screenplay, Jamal.
1: <laughs> once Once I get all of my other screenplay ideas out the way, maybe I'll try to tackle this one. Yeah,
0: put it on your list anyway. Yeah. <laughs> so something that Dr. Williams was talking about is this sort of obscure calculus that went into the government's decisions to help people or not to help people try to figure out how to get back to their families. So we asked her whether the decisions to help people or not help people, um, whether the Freedmen's Bureau actually had like a rubric for what to do in these cases?
4: Yeah, as far as I can tell, it was completely discretionary. So that if you're a Freedmen's Bureau agent in a particular community, you are being called on for all kinds of things. You know, they're acting as courts, really, in some cases. They're deciding when owners want to keep former slaves working for them without pay, they're being consulted for that. They're trying to really push free people into signing contracts to continue to work for former owners or for other plants. So they were doing a lot of things. And so somebody might be moved by a particular letter and might take the time to go and try to get some information about the person um, the family was searching for. But then you also see some... Comments from Freedmen's Bureau agents, let's say in response to requests for transportation, you know, why don't they just stay where they are or um, this is a nuisance or they should not become dependent on the government. So you had labored in slavery without pay for for your lifetime and your ancestors before that. But in this moment of emancipation, even asking For a few dollars to take a train was seen as if we do that, we'll be encouraging dependency and we cannot have people dependent on the federal government. And so, no, we're not going to help.
1: Two things stick out here for me. The first is that even even immediately after the end of slavery, when you have people who really do need some sort of material help just to get up on their feet and kind of be self-sufficient, you have these worries about dependency, which I think are very much tied to racial ideas about Black Americans, that these are people mm-hmm. who are helpless and cannot fend for themselves, and, you know, parenthetical, that's in part why they're in slavery. Um, mm-hmm. And we don't want that to, to happen again. And it's interesting to kind of juxtapose that with the extent to which in uh, plenty of places in the post-war South, Northern officials are trying to return freed people to some sort of like labor arrangement for the production of cotton and other resources. Um, that these I feel like those two things are in tension um, yeah. in a way that, you know, I'm sure some people realize at the time, but whatever. The other thing, and this is, I think, more of a, a 30,000 feet view of things, it's just how much the Freedmen's Bureau um, feels very modern in terms of the kind of services and the kind of thing it was trying to do that hadn't really happened before in American society, and certainly not as a, a function of government. Um, you can imagine a large humanitarian agency in the wake of a war coming out of the First World War, the Second World War, uh, and it makes sense that it would come out of the Civil War, which is sort of a, another conflict of comparable size and destruction. Um, but still it just, it feels both very appropriate and a bit like out of place. If, if, if you see what I'm saying.
0: I mean, it seems so extremely ad hoc, um, both like powerful and ad hoc in some ways. Right. I think maybe that's sort of the feeling that you get from it is that, you know, it's like, of course someone needed to step in, something needed to happen. So many people have all these human needs and are just in this sort of really chaotic place, but, but at the same there's time. There's no a model for it. Yeah, there is no model for it. And the Freedmen's Bureau fascinates me for that reason. I think it's so interesting.
1: So because there's all this chaos and because the Freedmen's Bureau is not super interested in being a source of unlimited or even sort of generous help, what's interesting is that it, you know, as, as is often the case, I think, in the story of uh, American slavery, it is the enslaved people themselves, or in this case, the four million enslaved people, who are working to reunite themselves and bring some water to their own lives.
0: That's the source of another amazing set of sources that Dr.
4: Williams used in her book. One of one of the really fantastic sources from this time period um, are these information-wanted ads, the ads that people placed in newspapers after the end of the Civil War. So the war ends in um, April, and by October, you have people. So before the 13th Amendment, you have people establishing newspapers, black newspapers, and then people start to advertise in these newspapers looking for family members. And the ads might be three or four lines, five lines, but the information they would put in is the name of the person you're looking for, the name of the people, because somebody, you know, there's a, a mother in Raleigh who had lost nine children and she names each of them. Very important information is who they had belonged to. And in a family, people may have belonged to two or three people or four people. And so they want to list the name of the slave owners. And the reason for that is because these would have been, for the most part, white men in a community whose names would mean something more than my mother's name was Betty. Even if you give a a last name for the former slave, that name may have changed. And so you want to give the name of the owner... And then also the name of a slave trader. If a trader had been involved in the sale, you might know of multiple owners. Some people knew that a daughter, a mother might know that her daughter had been sold and taken to Texas and then in one case had been taken to Cuba. And so they're listing the places where the person had been and they're listing the names of the white men who had been involved in the transactions.
5: mister Editor, I desire some information about my mother. The last time I saw her, I was in Alexandria, Virginia, about the year eighteen fifty two or eighteen fifty three. Her name was Hannah. She belonged to lawyer Tibbs, who sold her when I was quite young, to a trader named Brothing. Lather Tibbs lived in Leesburg, Virginia, when he sold mother to Brothing, And afterwards, tips moved to Alexandria, Virginia, and swapped me to Brothering for another boy. Brothering put me in jail, and I cried. So he told me if I would hush, he would bring my mother there next morning, which he did. Mother then brought me some cake and candy, and that was the last time I saw her. Brothering brought me to New Orleans, Louisiana, and sold me to a man named M. Pickett. If Mother is found, please address me at Deasonville, Yazoo County, Mississippi, in care of Reverend James Allen. Henry Tibbs, Southwestern Christian Advocate, December 11th, 1879. So the thing
0: about that ad to me, um, besides the fact that it has a really sad story in it, is that, you know, the last time that Henry Tibbs saw his mother was in 1853, and he's placing the ad in 1879. And so a bunch of years have already passed, and he's got all of this information sort of that he's treasuring or he's keeping. He's sort of uh, he's trying to figure out how to make these pieces that he has fit together in a way that will bring her back to him.
1: Right. And this, I mean, this is, as we've said, this is a story that's replicating itself across the South. And one thing I wouldn't do is understate the extent to which this kind of story probably has been going on since the end of the Civil War into the present because you had so many families that were separated, so many people um, rinsed away from from their relations that maybe the direct people never found each other the parents and the and the children the siblings the the spouses but uh, the the next generation forward may have run into someone the two generations forward may have run into someone uh, today there are plenty of stories about people discovering or meeting or in and i guess you can use the word reuniting we're able to use for this um with you know Families of enslavers and enslaved, but I wouldn't discount the extent to which, with genealogical research, especially, you're finding people reuniting with family members or branches of their family that were separated in the wake of of slavery in the Civil War, and that the Civil War and, and this period of American history isn't really that far away. And in, in terms of sort of human lifespans. it's I think the uh, the Louis C.K. joke is that it's two 75-year-old women living back to back. Yeah. And so that in in that time span, you know, families can still find each other 100 years later.
0: Yeah, and I'm I'm hoping that the more sort of documents like this go online, you know, either the separation ads or the Freedman's Bureau ads, you know, just the more effort is put into digitizing this stuff, the easier that will become, although of course We know that some stuff just never got written down. So no matter how much digitization we do, you know, in some cases, those reunions will be hard to bring about. But we wanted to know from Dr. Williams, how many of these ads might have led to successful reunions. And of course, she doesn't really, you know, know that numerically, but she will let us know that she was able to find a few success stories in the documentary record.
4: There's one case where there's a letter written by a man named Tate, and it was written in 1863, so it was written after the Emancipation Proclamation was signed, but this had no effect on his freedom or his wife's freedom, because the Emancipation Proclamation did not free most enslaved people. And so he and his wife belonged to two different owners. Her owner had taken her away. I think they lived in Georgia. And so she was still in Georgia, but hundreds of miles away. And so he was dictating a letter. His, um, The slave owner's wife actually wrote the letter for him. And he says, you know, this is probably my last letter because Master says, it makes no sense for me to keep writing to you he will not let me come and live near where you are because your owner took you away. And so that's not his responsibility. And furthermore, he says that I should find another woman, that there are all these other women here who would be interested in me and and so he sends his love to his wife and to his two children. He names the children. He never names his wife. He, calls, he says, my dear wife. But he pledges his love to her. He says, I'm not interested in any of these other women, but if anything should happen, I'll let you know first. And he kind of goes back and forth on this. So this is 1863. And I was able to find him in the 1870 census as a free person living in a household with a woman and with three children, and two of the children have the names of the children he had mentioned in that letter. Yeah.
1: That's really great. (laughs) Back when we were first brainstorming this project, we kind of were working hard to figure out how to organize everything. You know, (laughs) American slavery its a thing of, of sort of slavery in the Western Hemisphere, at um, large is a, a massive topic, um, and you know people make entire academic careers that are focusing on small slices of it. And so how are we going to tell this story in in nine episodes, no less, without sort of overlooking something? And I think it was your idea, Rebecca, to focus on these individual lives um, instead of trying to tackle it broad theme by broad theme. And and I mentioned that because I think. This the last clip and in this episode in particular really highlights how much the, the history of American slavery is the history of these individual lives and of these families and of these communities um, and of their struggle to bring some sense of order and coherence and, and light to their lives in the midst of this this very terrible system.
0: I think it's really – I mean – I believed it when I proposed this way of doing it and I think at the end of the experience of doing this whole inaugural slate academy that uh especially for this topic I like looking at as much information about people's lives as we have um because there's so many sort of big sweeping things that happened during the period that affected people's lives that you know from the perspective of the white people living at the time, you know, those people, the enslaved people didn't matter for, for or were like outside of history in some way or were, um, you know, the sort of the matter that was building history or like the hands that was building history, but weren't thinking about it or weren't affected by it in some way. And that part of the racism that allowed slavery to happen. And so for me, you know, looking at as much information as we have, which is not very much about some people um about how people reacted to what was going on around them and, you know, made decisions or changed the way that they were living or tried to fix things for themselves or, you know, in whatever way that might be. For me, that's kind of a way of saying, well, they were part of history. They were there and they were affected by things and they were trying to do whatever they could to change things.
1: What's remarkable to me is how much, you know, 150 years later, um, These stories and, and these places still resonate. To finish off the series, we did an event um, involving a whole host of scholars around slavery or about slavery, which you can listen to at the Slate Academy website. And one of the people who participated, um, what he does as um, partially a job, partially a vocation, partially a hobby, is bring people to sleep. Um, and to stay in what's left of the cabins of enslaved people on former plantations. And to me, that that's just an incredibly powerful thing, um, because it, what it does is it does begin to help you inhabit the lives of, of these people. You know, I, I, I think I said at the beginning of this series, I've long had an interest, an academic interest in American slavery, but I never thought so much about Individual lives, people's lives, as I have doing this project, and I'm I'm great. I'm grateful for it. Um, it's given me a new way of not of just approaching this history, but history in general.
0: I mean, I love hearing that as a cultural historian. That's sort of my <laughs> my uh, always sort of my reflex in some way. Um, I'm always sort of interested in everyday life, and I'm interested in the way that you know large political movements affect what happens in a kitchen or what happens in a bedroom. And one of the amazing things about doing this series to me is the amount of scholarship that people have been able to produce that actually looks at those sort of intimate relationships or emotional relationships, family relationships, the way people are around each other every day. Um, you know, there's an argument to be made that that stuff is gone <laughs> Because it wasn't recorded. But there's a lot of really good books, you know, Stephanie Camp's book that I really loved, or Tavolia Volia book, you know, Annette Gordon-Reed's book, these are all writers who are trying to say, okay, so, you know, we don't have that much information, but we do have some stuff that we can kind of think about as, you know, a way to reconstruct the way that people just on a like, kind of an emotional level reacted to being enslaved And that, to me, is sort of like what has the potential to transform the way that people think about the history of slavery, because it's so hard, it's so, it's so exhausting (laughs) in some way (laughs) to think about. And there, when you get down to it on this human level, I think it's paradoxically almost easier in some way.
1: I think that's right. And I think getting down to the human level also helps, I think, dispel some of the myths and misdirections that emerge in any public conversation about slavery, we published a piece for Slate um, on many of these myths and misdirections. And one of, the, I think, the common threads to all of them is an attempt to completely abstract out the people involved. And so it's easy to kind of dismiss mass suffering or it's easy to kind of look for some sort of way out if these are all, if this, if this is all just an abstraction. Um, I think it's much yeah. more difficult when you're thinking of the enslaved as actual people like, you know, like you and me, people who had aspirations, people who had loves. Um, there's in, in Tanahasi Coates' book, Between the World and Me, which is written as a letter to his son, there is a great passage where he describes an enslaved person as, you know, someone who liked the particular way light fell on the grass, right? Yeah. They were people just like you and I, and remembering that and taking that yeah. seriously. Um, It doesn't just make for, for better history, but I think it provides the empathy that allows us to resist this temptation to obfuscate or avoid the reality of the institution and the people who inhabited it.
2: Read an excerpt from Heather Williams's book, Help Me to Find My People, The African-American Search for Family Lost in Slavery, as part of this Slate Academy. Find the link in our show notes
0: or at slate.com academy. And with that, that's the end of this first Slate Academy. We really want to thank you listeners for sticking with us through this sort of experimental project. And what, also we want to hear what kinds of topics you'd like to hear Slate Explorer in the Academy format in the future. Um, so there's a link to a survey in the show notes for this episode. Or you could write us an email at historyacademy at slate.com you know, That email address has the word history in it but this Academies won't always be about history and so if you're interested in hearing an academy about some other non-history related topic shocking though that sounds to me <laughs> um, send us an email and we will forward it to the right person.
1: And we should say thank you to everyone who helped put this together. That includes our producers, uh, Tony Field and Jeff Friedrich, Mm -hmm. as well as our Slate Plus bosses, uh, Dan Coyce and Gabe Roth. Um, And then also just sort of slate management for deciding that this is a thing (laughs) that would be a good idea to do.
0: And I also want to say thank you so much to the professors, the scholars who appeared as our guests for bearing with our many curious questions. If you missed any of our earlier episodes, you could go to slate.com slash academy, and there's also links to excerpts from the books we talked about there and further reading. And we're going to leave the episodes up for Slate Plus members. Part of the idea of this series was that it would be something that would be durable, that would be evergreen, that you could listen to you know, next year or the year after that. So they will continue to be available.
1: We will continue to use our private Facebook group for listeners, um, which is facebook.com slash groups slash History Academy. Um, mm-hmm. Rebecca, more than me, honestly, posts a lot of great stuff to read. <laughs> um, but I will try to engage more as well. And hopefully we can keep the conversation going, both for people who've been listening from the beginning and for the recurring new listeners we, we hope to have.
0: Jamal, thank you so much for doing this with me.
1: Rebecca, thank you for asking me to do it. Um, I'm really glad we, we had a chance to work together on this.
0: I'm Rebecca Anya.
1: I'm Jamal Bui, and thank
5: you so much for listening.